Hi, I'm Rebecca Onion, a staff writer at Slate. Back in 2015, I co-hosted this podcast with my colleague Jamel Bowie as we explored the history of American slavery. This year, as we commemorate the 400 years since the beginning of American slavery in 1619, we're re-releasing this nine-part series to the public. To learn more about the series and to support more of this work at Slate, please visit slate.com slash academy. Thanks so much for listening. Hello, and welcome back to the History of American Slavery at Slate Academy. I'm Jamal Bowie. I'm a Slate staff writer. And I'm Rebecca Onion, Slate's history writer. So this is episode seven of our podcast. It's an episode all about the connections between slavery and the practice of medicine and antebellum America. And as we do on each podcast, we're using the story of a single enslaved person as a springboard for our discussion. Today, that person is a woman named Anarka. In June 1845, a 17-year-old enslaved woman named Anarka experienced a difficult delivery of her first baby. After the young mother pushed for three days, the Alabama slaveholder who owned her called in Montgomery doctor J. Marion Sims. Sims pulled the baby out with forceps. The historical record suggests that the child did not survive. The experience left Anarka with tears in her vaginal tissue, a condition known as obstetric fistulas. These tears often result in a constant leakage of urine or feces into the vaginal canal, leading to infections and to social ostracization. Anarka's owner eventually brought her to Dr. Sims' office in Montgomery. Sims knew there was no cure for a fistula and that women of all races suffered from them. He decided to make a concerted effort to figure out how to treat fistulas. He leased Anarka from her slaveholder and gathered a group of 11 other patients, some of whom were also enslaved. Sims spent three and a half years performing experimental surgical techniques on these women. He did not administer anesthesia, which was not then commonly used. The doctor drugged the patients with opium during their two-week recoveries from each surgery. Anarka underwent 30 surgeries before Sims finally perfected his technique and equipment, enough to close one of her numerous fistulas using silver sutures. Anarka drops out of the historical record at this point. We don't know if she was returned to her owner or when she died. As historian Deborah Kuhn McGregor points out, Sims did not record any further operations on Anarka. We don't even know if he fixed her other fistulas. What we do know is that thanks in large part to the techniques he perfected while operating on Anarka and the others, J. Marion Sims is often remembered as a father of gynecology. Sims later describes his motivation in undertaking these experiments. I thought only of relieving the loveliest of all God's creations of one of the loathsome maladies. He was referring to the white women he was later able to treat using the techniques he perfected on Anarka and her fellow patients. So, Jamel, we have an unusual biography today. Anarka is sort of an outlier from the sort of list of people that we've based our episodes on so far. That's right. Anarka, unlike... Yeah, unlike pretty much everyone else, um, did not escape slavery. She did not get out of the system at all. And we know about Anarka in particular simply because records were kept. But if the experimenters did not bother to keep records, we would never know that um, this individual uh, ever existed. How much have you read in the past or how much do you know about the history of experimenting on enslaved subjects? This is something that was an entirely new area for me. As soon as we started reading about it, it made absolute sense if you're going to use enslaved people for agriculture and for factory work and for all sorts of things. And of course, you would use them for medical experimentation. This particular area of American slavery feels the worst. Hmm. I don't don't know if that makes any Hmm. sense, but just... There's something that feels more viscerally wrong about conducting surgeries on unwilling participants than merely working. Them. Interesting, and that might be silly. That might be you know it, it, it's all it's all bad. But it, for me, at least, this to me just feels. It, it doesn't feel like, but it is sort of the most extreme exhortation of the will of a of a slaveholder. Right, that I am. Mm-hmm. In such complete control that this is what I'm going to do to you. And I think one thing that makes it unsettling for me is also the way that the information that 
uh, doctors and scientists were able to get, especially in the 19th century, from experimenting on enslaved people is sort of embedded in our medical practices. Like, you know, the example of Sims is a good one. I hopefully, knock on wood, will not be subject to having a fistula because they've mostly been eradicated in developed nations. Um, but uh, speculum, which is another thing that he invented, is something I've definitely had contact with. Right, right. So we had a really interesting conversation about all of this. We spoke to Deirdre Cooper Owens. She's a historian at Queens College, uh, City University of New York. And she's written about Anarka and the other women who this uh, scientist experimenter, James Sims, used as subjects. In our conversation, one thing we brought up and one thing I asked about was the, I guess we could call it cognitive dissonance involved in these kinds of experiments. On one hand, there is a firm belief that enslaved people and enslaved women in particular were different, physically and fundamentally different than white women, and that this is why we could experiment on them, because they had a higher tolerance of pain, because they were stronger, because they were less intellectually developed. On the other, scientists use the results from these experiments to provide health care and health services for white women. Those people then are thought to have more delicate nerves. Right. Um, so, for instance, elite white women are more fragile because their nerves are more sensitive. Black women um, have arrested states of intellectual development, and so that means that they're physically stronger. Uh, this means that there is greater ease in childbirth. And these are things that filtered down from Europe, you know, centuries before. And by the 19th century, they're pretty much accepted. But this is where the, the kind of illogic comes in and the cognitive dis, uh, dissonance. Once you read 19th century medical journal articles, and even sometimes the personal um, physician's records of these doctors, you'll find, oh, but she struggled. My assistants had to hold her down, which clearly states that, in fact, these people experienced pain just as anyone else would experience pain if they were being operated on without right. anesthesia. Right. And, and these men know that because these are people who live in their homes, cook for their families, nurse their children. They impregnate them. I mean, so clearly they understand that the kind of biological processes that black women experience are exactly the same as white women. But the racial etiquette of the day states that, in fact, you can't write that because that would then you know, somehow disprove the the science of the day. One thing that is remarkable to me about all of this experimentation is the extent to which it seems to have been frequent. For, for instance, we don't exactly know how long um, the women spent with Sims, um, but we do know that there is at least one woman, Lucy, who is with him for about five years, uh, during which she underwent around 30 surgeries, which is... 30 surgeries without anesthesia is insane, frankly. It's, it's, it's really horrible. And so something about that huge number of surgeries is also strange to us because it, it's not only the fact that, you know, he kept on doing these experimental surgeries on women like Lucy and Anarka, but also that that's such a long period of time to be intimate with someone, to be around someone all the time in the way that this group of women who were living with Sims were around each other. And so Dr. Owens pointed out that that's a sort of an interesting factor, which is that in order to do these experiments over such a long period of time, Sims in some way had to be living alongside his subjects. After about two years, I know the white community withdrew support of Sims because his experiments kept failing. Um, and so he had to train his patients to also work as nurses, essentially, right? And so we don't know their words, but what we do understand is um, from the census records that one of these women did give birth during the last year of the experimental trial. Now, I, I don't know who it was, whether it was Anarka, whether it was Betsy, Lucy, or one of the unknown women, but obviously some white man had access to her body because she gave birth to a mulatto girl who was either one or two years old. 
at the end of the experimental trial, right? Which, once again, flies in the face that, oh, these bodies are different. I mean, obviously, they're not that different, right, if a white man impregnates one of these enslaved women um, and she gives birth to a half-white child. You know, the topic of the, the women's relationship to these experiments sort of brings up a lot of the complications that I felt earlier when we were talking about um, Sally Hemings' relationship to Thomas Jefferson in some ways. According to Sims, the women who were participating in these trials wanted to get better and wanted the surgeries because of that. But how can we ever talk about, you know, the idea of them approving or disapproving of what was being done to them when they were being bought and sold in order to do it? Right. It, it's very tricky. And I think for me, the, the way I tend to think of it is that there's obviously, you call it micro consent, right? Telling someone, you know, this is a problem and I want something done about it. But I think you can call micro consent. But all this mm-hmm. is taking place in this decision matrix informed by the fact that you're enslaved and that you're owned by someone and that fundamentally the kind of you know, macro consent that we associate with consent. Um, you know, I'm going to choose to go to the doctor. I'm going to choose to undergo this surgery. If I decide that I no longer want to do this surgery, even at the last possible moment, I can, I can opt out of it. That doesn't mm-hmm. exist for these women. And so I think that's, that's how you might try to navigate this because it is very thorny and you don't want to say that the women were somehow, you know, Ottomans, right? Like they weren't, they were, they were women and they were people and they, had small say, but some say in what they were going to do with their bodies. But it's simply not the same kind of consent that we would imagine when we say the word consent. You know, we asked Dr. Owens about the way that people who were on plantations who were being treated by doctors might react to treatments. And she did say that there is some evidence that people would try to reject some medical treatments that were being about to be applied to them and that they had different ways of sort of fighting that decision. You would have women who would physically fight those who were holding them down. So, you know, in these surgeries, as you can imagine, um, where there is no anesthesia that's being uh, given to a patient, once she sees that she's about to be cut, I mean, you might imagine the fear kicks in. And she begins to try to protect herself, to run away. And so there are these accounts in medical journal articles, sometimes on doctors' case records, where these things are noted. Um, Oftentimes, women, enslaved women, would feign, instead of feigning illness, they would feign healthiness. So I think it's worth also pointing out that in a lot of cases, the especially before sort of the middle of the 19th century, the cures that enslaved people were resisting would have been part of an ethic that later got called uh, heroic medicine, which is this idea that you, as the doctor, something that you want to do is to prove that you have made an effect on the patient by administering medication that would cause them to throw up or have diarrhea or to sweat or in some way to have the body react in some extreme way. And so if a doctor has been called to a plantation to treat an enslaved person, there's an expectation that they're going to do something that will look kind of dramatic. And so, um, you know, enslaved people who were sort of more trusting of the um, sort of folk medicine remedies that they shared among themselves, which are much less invasive, which involved sort of herbal medicine or, you know, root medicine, or in some way, something that did not involve um, either cutting or purging. That's right. And one sort of interesting, um, broader thing is the extent to which that kind of heroic medicine, these experiments, this use of medical practices on enslaved people produces a very profound distrust of medical science and of the medical establishment. And you see that you see that even today, um, in part because the kinds of experimentation we're talking about didn't really end with the end of slavery. The most infamous example, of course, is the Tuskegee syphilis experiment, um, which was conducted between 1932 and 1972, uh, and after the passage of the Civil Rights Act and the Voting Rights Act by the U.S. Public Health Service um, to study untreated syphilis in uh, rural African-American men in Alabama. What was so horrifying about it was that these men were told that they were receiving free treatment. They were not. 
medical officials were just letting the disease progress uh, untreated, even though we had penicillin at that point and we had treatments for syphilis. And so those kind of events, those kind of stories, uh, they have a long hold on, on black memory and black cultural memory, and they play a part in ongoing distrust among black Americans um, for the medical establishment. And we talked to Dr. Cooper precisely about this, about what impact this legacy of experimentation has today. Well, after slavery, you have a very real sense of distrust. And so there was a study that came out of Chicago a few years ago, and unfortunately I can't think of the report right now, but I've taught it in some of my classes where even in the 21st century, African Americans are often aware of these kinds of experiments gone wrong, so to speak, right? So even if they can't name Tuskegee, and you find this especially uh, prevalent amongst older members of uh, black communities here, where they're very vocal about not trusting doctors, right? Because of this long history that has really been at the core of American medicine since its founding, in this country, right? That black people have always been accessible populations, almost like, you know, early doctors had access to prisoners or orphans or those who were um, mentally ill. This, this, this sort of gives new uh, context to my, my dad's sort of insistence that if you get sick, you gotta, you know, drink a tea, eat better. Mm -hmm. Um, Mm -hmm. Don't you? Don't, you don't got to go to the doctor. I think maybe that's right. some of the, this personal stubbornness. But I think I think uh, he's a historically literate man, so I think right, right, right. I think this is probably some of it too. And I think I should ask him about it. Right. You know, it's like that Chris Rock joke, right? Where he says his dad, anything, you know, you can have a broken leg, and he's like, get a bottle of Tussin. You know? <laughs> <laughs> but that's that's bad. That's okay. You know what? We can do this. Or I'm gonna ask your grandmama, you know, because she has a cure for this thing. Um, you know, and so although we kind of laugh beneath the laughter, you know, just as you share, your father's not some ignorant man, right. but there's this thing that kind of lurks in the background that even if we don't verbalize it, right, that it taps into this kind of ancestral DNA that certain communities have when they know that they've been used, you know, in, in kind of medical treatments and experiments that haven't boded very well. Uh, for the larger community. Something I was surprised to find out about while doing more research into Sims for this episode is that there is a statue, a commemorative statue of him in Central Park in New York City. And there have been over the years a couple of attempts, none of which to my knowledge have gotten that far, to talk about removing the statue. And we asked Dr. Owens what she thought about this question. You know, I take exception that James Marion Sims was somehow a more exceptional racist or a more exceptional bigot, right? What this man did was actually pathbreaking medically. What he did was pathbreaking. Now, does his behavior warrant questions regarding biomedical ethics even in the 19th century, right? There should have been no reason that a woman was impregnated during her experimental trial by a white man, at least according to the census records, where she gives birth to a mulatto child. So that's problematic even then. But, you know, this whole kind of fixation, I think a lot of historians of medicine have on James Marion Sims, misses the larger point that he is, you know, representative. He's symbolic of the larger field of reproductive medicine at that time. Right. And James Marion Sims simply, for me, opens up conversations about how we need to have fuller histories of American medical history. So, for instance, to be able to know that every time a woman gets a pap smear in this country and there's a duck-billed speculum, you know, that Sims dubbed the Sims speculum, that that was perfected on the bodies of enslaved women. So medicine and even science to a degree, right, in terms of the research that's being done, they're not value neutral, that they are just as invested in the, the history of slavery, right, and access to poor black bodies as colleges, right, as any other industry in this country, because slavery was here longer, right, than medicine. Slavery was here longer than the implantation of American democracy, right, and so perhaps there can be 
another plaque dedicated to these women's uh, mm-hmm. legacies, or perhaps there should be uh, some kind of scholarship or fellowship set up for um, black people, uh, particularly black women who are in medical school, <laughs> who want to be OBGYNs, right, so that they can have the money to to continue their studies and their research. That's something that I think is much more important than kind of quibbling over the symbolism of James Marion Sims' statue. So I'm curious, Jamel, what you think about this idea of the alternative commemoration, sort of uh, forgetting about a statue or a plaque and instead sort of setting up a a fellowship or a scholarship. I think that's a really great idea. Um, I think that it gets to the sense far more than even like another statue or plaque. It gets to the sense that there needs to be some reckoning or um, accounting for the women who were used for these experiments. Um, you know, I'll, I'll also say that one thing I really liked about um, Dr. Cooper Owens's answer was that first line towards the end, uh, because slavery was here longer than medicine, or at least than American medicine. Mm-hmm. That to me gets to something like very important about this entire conversation. And I think what we're exploring with this podcast, um, which is that, you know, the institution of slavery, it's very much a part of sort of every part of American society from the beginning of the country to, I mean, before then, colonial America, um, really mm-hmm. extending past the actual official end of slavery and into the end of the century, um, just from the spillover and legacy from slavery, um, which is why, you know, occasionally on Twitter or social networks, I'll see someone say, well, especially after I tweet about the podcast, I'll see someone say something to the effect of, well, why does it matter now? Well, it matters now because so much of what we do is still connected to it. And this is true of medicine and it's true of our economy and it's true of many other things. Oh, for sure. And that's why I like the idea of the fellowship so much, because it's sort of both acknowledging that legacy and then also saying, you know, we can't change what happened in history, but we could change in some ways the relationship between medicine and Black people by opening up medicine to Black people more. That's right. That's right. So if anyone has a bunch of money out there and wants to endow this scholarship, (laughs) please give us a call. I think that is a great point to pause here for a little housekeeping. After that, when we get back, we are going to consider the case of another prominent physician of the time who focused on the mental health of enslaved people. And when you hear me say mental health, you should imagine scare quotes around mental health. (laughs) This is a crazy story, um, and I think you'll find it both kind of amusing and and sort of the conclusions that this doctor comes to, but also I I think you'll find it a little disturbing for much the same reasons that the story of Anarka and Sims has been, for me at least, a little disturbing. You're listening to the History of American Slavery, a Slate Academy. We'll be right back. If you want to write to Rebecca and me about this episode, you can send us an email at historyacademy at slate.com. And listeners will know we've also launched a private Facebook group just for Academy members. You can find that group at facebook.com slash groups slash History Academy. Welcome back to the History of American Slavery, a Slate Academy. I'm Jamel Bowie. And I'm Rebecca Onion. In our first segment of this podcast, we talked about the way that experimentation on Black people who were enslaved has helped science and medicine develop new ways, new treatments, new understandings of disease and affliction. In this part of the podcast, we're going to talk a little bit more about the way that, in turn, science and medicine was used to build up slavery, to justify enslavement. That's right. It's around this period, broadly speaking, that 
ideas about the scientific method and sort of science to the mode of interpretation uh, begin to enter mainstream thought. And naturally, that also filters over to slaveholders who see in this language and in this mode of interpretation a way to uh, explain both why Africans needed to be enslaved and justify the practice of enslavement. One person who often comes up in this conversation is the physician Samuel Cartwright, who is probably best remembered for inventing the term drapetomania, a, a term he coined in 1851. So this is a term that comes from the Greek for runaway and for um, obviously mania, like madness. And the idea is that some enslaved people are just... Um, sort of infected with the desire to run away and that this was a disease and not a desire of theirs. Yeah, I don't quite remember uh, where I heard about this, but I <laughs> I have a very distinct memory of uh, of learning about this in like a book or a textbook or something and thinking it was just the most ridiculous thing I've ever heard. Yeah, it's sort of held up often as an extreme example of 19th century pseudoscience. And it's, um, you know, certainly to our ears, it sounds so obviously wrong. And it's a really good example of the way that scientific racism sort of upheld the institution of slavery. Um, but I think there is a little bit more to say about Cartwright that shows how this sort of way out there idea is actually sort of integrated into the way that people thought about Black people in the 19th century. He was a Southerner uh, living in Mississippi and Louisiana. He was friends with future Confederate President Jefferson Davis, who would have been um, probably a young lawyer or just getting into politics at the time. He published in the Southern Quarterly Review and the DuBose Review, which you can think of as a, basically a Southern equivalent to Harper's or The Atlantic, um, publications that would have been widely read uh, among uh, affluent Southerners, even probably quite a few Northerners publications in which he would have had pretty wide currency. Um, what's interesting um, and what really is a bit bizarre looking back is how, how so ingrained these ideas of black inferiority were that behaviors that if you were an actual rational person, you looked at them, behaviors that seem very much like resistance. Um, you, you had mentioned um, – Running away, uh, in one of Cartwright's articles, he talks about an affliction called dysthesia ethiopica, um, mm -hmm. which in the article he calls a, quote, disease peculiar to Negroes and called by overseers uh, rascality. So he describes it as a partial insensibility of the skin, uh, a great hebitude of the intellectual faculties, uh, as to be like a person half asleep with difficulty aroused and kept awake. Now, with modern eyes, um, and I'm very certain there must have been people back then who thought the same, this is just enslaved Africans deciding to work less <laughs> to frustrate their owners. Um, it's very easy to understand. It's a full, common form of resistance. But Cartwright and others, rather than sort of try to take this behavior and understand it as rational, going back to their previously held belief that uh, slaves were, you know, less than human, decided to describe this as a medical disorder that needed to be treated um, like any other medical disorder. But then he also reassures the reader to say, you know, if treated correctly, which is to say not as equals, not as friends, but as children, then enslaved people will sort of fall into line because they are not only physically inferior, but inclined physically to be less than a white person. So he has this idea that um, black people are better at kneeling, literally better at kneeling than white people, for example. Um, and so what he reads in that is that the physical structure of the black body proves that the black person needs guidance and cannot be left on his own. So we spoke to a person who studies Cartwright, and this is Chris Willoughby, who's a historian at Tulane University. And his dissertation that he's working on right now is called Pedagogies of the Black Body, Race and Medical Education in the Antebellum United States. Um, and he said for him, sort of the 
super seriousness of Cartwright's theories was a reminder to him of the way that um, self-consciously rational and scientific ideas are always intertwined with culture. Cartwright was able to filter his science through a kind of political worldview where slavery was right. And so it seems to think of Cartwright as a kook or as a quack loses the fact that people were reading Cartwright. His peers were not dismissing him. Uh, People found him interesting. He's more of a public intellectual and a conversation starter than a authoritative final word on any subject. But to dismiss him misses the point that these ideas are at the core of what was American society in the mid-19th century, and science was not immune to that. You know, my my first question about all of this, Rebecca, is um, about his methodology. <laughs> yeah. Um, it, was it, was it, is it sound? Is it, is it something to treat seriously, I suppose? Well, I asked Chris about that because, you know, we use the word science to refer to what he was doing, um, but it's not really the kind of medical science that we would recognize today with a clinical trial, um, you know, a control group, those kinds of, uh, you know, niceties that we have now on medical research. (laughs) Um, You know, Cartwright, even more so than Sims, so Sims, uh, you know, was doing, you know, sort of successive experiments of the same type on a group of people. Um, And so for whatever the horribleness of what he did, um, he was was taking a more defined approach to his research. We would would recognize his research as being close to somewhat legitimate. uh, Exactly. I mean, you know, all the moral considerations aside. Yes, yes. You know, but, um, you know, Chris said that what Cartwright did, which was much more to use sort of anecdote and generalization to sort of remember cases in which he'd treated someone or some case he'd read in the literature, often he would be reading other people's descriptions of cases and then making his own conclusions from that, Um, that this wasn't actually that uncommon as a way to come up with medical theories or to write in the medical literature at that time. That just, I think, emphasizes the extent to which so much of this research is kind of ideology reading back into, um, I guess we could call it data, of reading your conclusions into your evidence and not uh, letting evidence lead you to conclusions. And the conclusion that Cartwright held and that was widely held at the time, as we said earlier, was just that Africans were naturally inferior. Um, And obviously their behavior would reveal as much. What was interesting to me is that this sort of large ideology that governed all of his ideas about enslaved Africans occasionally yielded therapeutic benefit on the principle that even a stop clock is right twice a day. Um, and so Chris told me about one of those cases in which actually Cartwright's idea, through no merit of his own, actually worked to solve a medical problem. I mean, one of Cartwright's more famous ones that actually has some therapeutic validity was when cholera and dysentery out- outbreaks on plantations, he would force all the slaves to live in the woods in the field uh, it was called the wilderness treatment, and his belief was he was returning them to the barbarism of Africa, where they were at their healthiest. And so Cartwright wrote about that, and then he actually, one of his reviewers from South Alabama says uh, that this has worked, that they've done it. Other doctors in a different part of the South have used the wilderness treatment to great effect. So it ends up becoming evidence of black inferiority, mm-hmm. that they're naturally barbarous, but when in truth, all it is evidence of is if you don't live amongst your feces, you don't get cholera um, yeah. very often. Uh, uh-huh. Slaves where most plantations didn't have specific toilet areas, and so slaves had to deposit their bodily waste, usually fairly close to where they lived, they, it could infect the water supply. So if you take them away from that area, they're going to go away from where all these intestinal diseases are thriving. So it's not that their slaves are going back to barbarism that's curing them, it's that they're not in close, tight quarters, spreading their feces around. Um, yeah. They might have also been sourcing their water from a different place when they uh, move uh, locations. But the premise of the treatment is based in racism, so you interpret it as, as evidence of racial inferiority. So the listeners uh, don't know this, but I wasn't able to participate in this conversation. You, you spoke with 
Willoughby, Rebecca, but did you ask him at all about sort of the national prominence of these ideas? Was this really a regional thing? Was it just, you know, Southerners talking about this? Or were Americans um, overall kind of engaged, or at least educated Americans overall, engaged in these kinds of conversations? I think this is the most interesting thing about his research, he would probably say, is that um, this was a really widespread thing. And so the way that he sort of got at this question was to look at the work of medical students, both in the North and in the South, or sort of the material that the professors were using to teach them about anatomy, to teach them about disease. You know, he found that there was a difference between Northern and Southern students insofar as like a Southern medical student who might expect to be going into a practice where he, probably he, (laughs) would be um, treating enslaved people would be sort of looking at these more sort of practical theories about what to do when there's an outbreak of cholera on a plantation, um, an outbreak of dysentery. Um, But in the North, Chris found a lot of evidence that Northern students were studying these sort of racialized ideas about anatomy. Um, so it's like a more theoretical approach to the question, but they would study the work of people like um, Samuel Morton, who sort of famously had a collection of over a thousand human skulls, and he measured the cranial capacity and decided which racial groups were the most intelligent based on the cranial capacity of their skulls. Um, and that that kind of work was being taught in medical schools in the North. Joseph Leidy, the most famous anatomist in the United States, probably in the 1850s and professor of anatomy at the University of Pennsylvania, told his students that there was as much difference between a white man and a black man as there was between a lion and a tiger, but nobody ever suggests saying that a lion and a tiger are the same species. I'm paraphrasing. but uh, So his basic point was that black people are a different species. And so that that is seen a lot. And then also environmental health, black people are more capable of working in southern climates. So you can't put them in the north because they'll just be all getting pneumonia at all times. And so they're better fit to work in the rice swamps of South Carolina, sugar plantations of Louisiana and Mississippi, and the cotton plantations of the Black Belt. So here's another idea, which I should say um, Cartwright did not espouse, um, the polygenism theory that now sounds to us to be completely out there. Um, Jamel, had you heard of polygenism before? I had. It's the idea, right, that different races of man emerged in different places um, around the same time, and thus that, that you know, as per the anatomist that will it be discussed that makes them different species and you kind of see residues of this idea in the 20th century right i think in one of the court cases uh, rejecting interracial marriage a judge says something to the effect of god created man white red yellow and black and put them on separate continents uh, so on and so forth so the thing about this argument for polygenism is that it actually is a challenge to the literal truth of the Bible, because this idea of races springing up on separate continents is not supported in scripture. Um, And one of the things about understanding the relationship between science, religion, and slavery that's really hard is that from our modern point of view, our sort of understanding of the relationship between, you know, someone who might believe in science and someone who might believe in slavery and someone who might believe in religion, it's sort of hard to parse um, how those sort of allegiances or ideological tendencies would map onto each other. Right. I, I think looking from the perspective of the 21st century, where we we should have hold science in very high esteem and we, we treat it as a hallmark of, of rationality, that you look back at the 19th century and you see these self-described scientists kind of embracing um, racist ideology, embracing ideas like polygenism and sort of the separate specieshood of blacks uh, and, you know, probably Latinos for that matter and Asians for Mm -hmm. that matter. Um, It it seems bizarre. Like, why are the scientists uh, essentially so reactionary? And I think the thing that's important to understand about the 19th century and about 19th century ideological movements is, A, science then wasn't necessarily science now. And we kind of nodded at this earlier in the podcast. But one way to understand the kind of science we're talking about is it's sort of science as an ideology, science as 
science as an ideological movement that is related to science as a method, but not quite the same. I mean, you could probably refer to it as scientism if you're going to try to be more precise about it. But this scientism uh, didn't necessarily rely on sound experimental methods or the kinds of things we associate with with modern research. It very much was um, a a worldview based in natural observation that was unfiltered through ideas people already had. Um, and in this case, those ideas were racist ideas. And, and the other thing to consider about the period, the B here, is that racist ideas cut across the entire society and cut across political ideologies, cut across uh, worldviews, everything. There was nothing that was untouched by racist ideas. And so on the other side, that means that religious people uh, could go both ways. You had religious people who believed in black inferiority and saw the Bible as justification for it. You had religious people who did not believe that. Um, and one of the interesting kind of cross currents in pre-Civil War America is the extent to which American Christianity really was firmly divided. You had Southern slaveholders and, and Southern whites who saw slavery as divinely condoned and an increasing number of Northerners who differed. In any case, this is all to say that uh, it's you, you kind of have to look at this stuff on its own terms. Um, the scientists were not necessarily good guys. Uh, the religious people were not necessarily bad guys. I mean, <laughs> for a variety of reasons, I would say that it is kind of not uh, quite accurate to look at uh, religious people monolithically, but especially not now uh, in the in the 19th century when the abolitionist movement was primarily a religious movement, but so were m many of the defenders of slavery as well. Speaking of abolitionism um, and sort of the politics of this time, the fact that people are sort of actively talking about whether or not Black people are going to be liberated, whether or not Black people are capable of becoming citizens. I wanted to ask Chris about what I thought of as sort of the political stakes of thinking of the debate over whether Black people are a different species. This seems like a qualitatively different thing to me from the conversation of the 18th century, which thought in terms of the future possibility that if if cultivated enough, Black people could eventually be liberated. To think of Black people as a different species is to make a whole other argument. And here's what Chris had to say about that. I think what really shifts is that people aren't thinking in terms of equality ever being a possibility. I mean, even the pro-slavery advocates who believe in the same species, there's like this idea that eventually, I mean, it could be a thousand years, emancipation will happen. But but once we've brought them up through slavery, which I you know, obviously people are telling themselves what they want to hear. Yeah. <laughs> but um, once we've you know brought them out of barbarism through years in slavery and kind of tutelage and thinking of slavery as almost civilization school, um, that could take thousands of years potentially, at least hundreds. But that once that happens, once you don't believe that's possible, that you're dealing with a different animal, then. Slavery becomes a logical institution to protect the species and, and also to protect this kind of permanently inferior group uh, from themselves. So the stakes become, we're not ever talking about equality. And that's why even when emancipation happens, it immediately goes into kind of finding a way to control black people again, just through He's more political as opposed to an economic institution. All right. So we're almost at the end of this episode. And I think, Jamal, that we both will recognize that we haven't really talked about the thoughts of enslaved people. <laughs> this has been an episode about, it's turned out to be an episode about the toxic ideology that sort of has underpinned the way that 19th century science dealt with Black people. Um, and I wonder what you thought about sort of the theoretical question of whether it's worth it to spend time on this kind of thinking. So, you know, you sort of feel like at the end of reading an article by Samuel Cartwright that your brain has been poisoned. <laughs> um, is this is this a sort of an interesting way to approach history? Or does it sort of deny another way of doing history, which would be to concentrate more on what enslaved people were doing? That, that's a really great question. And 
I tend to think that there is plenty of room for lots of different approaches. You know, to take myself as an example, I'm sort of fascinated by intellectual history and by the history of ideas. And what's so useful about Willoughby's research is it's a window into ideas that have endured to the present, that still have purchasing currency. Um, and being able to see their origins and see where they come from, I think, is very helpful and very useful, even if um, in this particular piece of work, it comes at the expense of maybe an examination of enslaved people's lives. But other historians focus on that. And there's no, I don't, I, I do not see a problem with, um, different historians taking a different kind of approach and, and sort of looking at the same period with different eyes. Yeah, there is, I should mention, really interesting work um, by, for example, the historian Charlotte Fett, who writes about enslaved people's ideas about medicine and the things that they are able to do for each other on the plantation when these physicians are basically failing them. <laughs> um, and so, yeah, so both of those ideas can coexist, in my opinion. Um, I asked Chris about what it's like to sort of spend your intellectual life working with this kind of toxic material. And I asked him about what it was like to teach it in the classroom, which is kind of an interesting thing. If you can imagine assigning a Samuel Cartwright article to a class of 18 to 22 year olds. Um, and I also wanted to ask him about his own perspective on the question that we were just talking about, which is to say, you know, why did you decide to study these horrible people? My moral goal as a historian is to understand this understand this person's morality and their approach to the world, I have to actually leave behind my morals. If what I want to do is kind of really take these people on their own terms for the horror or the good they did, I have to try to not kind of self-righteously feel better than them. Yeah, at least um, for a while. At least for yeah, yeah. I mean, it's not while. like yeah. a... Don't, I'm not going to go out and advocate their, their ideas, but... Uh, yeah. I mean, a lot of what Hitler said is laughable, but he convinced a ton of people. Yeah. And if the goal is to figure out how that happens, and unless we want to assume that everybody's evil, in which case, what's the point? Which case, hang up your historian hat, because yeah, who cares? Yeah, exactly. Just, you know, I just assume that most people are good, maybe selfish, and trying to live their day-to-day -day life, but, but are pretty susceptible in, in tough times to awful ideas. Yeah. One thing Willoughby, I think, raises in his final comments, and one thing that I really do think is worth grappling with is this idea of how do we understand the people who lived in this system under these norms? Um, we said earlier that a guy like Cartwright was pretty well regarded for his time, had pretty wide currency. And um, what do we what do we think of his readers? Are these bad people, or the are they bad people for sort of indulging these ideas and believing them? And as I think about it. My perspective tends to be that as individuals, it is often very difficult to know if we are living in or participating in an evil system. Even at that time, um, when you have the full weight of everything telling you that blacks are inferior, it really shouldn't come as any surprise that not very many people in the end challenge the system. Uh, and when I say people here, I mean specifically white Americans. I think for me, this implies that we should have a certain amount of humility when we look back and try to understand the past, and we should try to be very judicious about the moral judgments we pass, because we we do not know how we would have um, understood our world if we lived at that time. I think that the recording of this episode has really brought that home to me in a lot of ways, because one of the things that's happening is that um, the ideology of racial inferiority is being encoded in ever more sort of respectable or sort of authoritative places. So the idea that, you know, a medical doctor or a scientist, uh, the idea that that person would be sort of very rationally laying out, you know, here's the new Greek name that I have for this supposed disease. And here are the treatments and here are, you know, the ramifications of my argument that this is something that as you say, it is very difficult to imagine stepping outside of that idea, if that idea has such currency. Um, and I think that's actually why the abolitionists who did sort of step outside of it are so much more interesting to me, or remarkable, or 
historically confusing in a way, um, if you think about them in relationship to the sort of dominant ideology of the time. And I should say that, you know, there were actually abolitionists who were still racists, <laughs> which is a, you know, sort of a proves the point in some way, you know, there are people who wanted emancipation, but also wanted black people to be taken back to Africa so that they didn't have to live beside them. Um, which kind of just goes to show how pervasive these ideas were. And I think in the next episode, when we talk about people's reactions to fugitives in the 1840s and 1850s, um, you really start to see this conversation that's going on that's stoked by ideas in science and in medicine. Um, this conversation starts to have heft in the real world and starts to have consequences. Um, and so we're seeing the way that arguments over what should happen with enslaved people are becoming ever more important in national life. As per Rebecca, in our next episode, we will be dealing with fugitive slaves. Uh, the Underground Railroad will be speaking with Eric Foner, the esteemed historian who has done a lot of great recent work on the Underground Railroad. And we'll also be looking at the life of John Parker, who was born a slave, who bought his freedom and then spent his time as a free man uh, helping blacks get out of the slave South. Until then, I'm Rebecca Onion. I'm Jamal Bowie. And thanks very much for listening. Want to prepare for episode eight of the Academy? You can read ahead. Rebecca and Jamel will talk to Eric Foner and Stephen Lubet about fugitives and their defenders in the North. Find an excerpt from Eric Foner's book, Gateway to Freedom, in our show notes or at slate.com slash academy. How do we get Americans to talk honestly about slavery? Join Jamel, Rebecca, LeVar Burton, and other special guests for a Slate Academy Symposium on September 17th in Washington, D.C., where they'll discuss how the history of slavery is taught and memorialized. To get tickets, visit slate.com slash academy.